The year is 2025. Fuck, that happened fast. The sun is shining on a warm December day and the new normal of warmer than average temperatures. You sip your coffee, the second one of the day, and wonder if this spring will be as rainy as last year's because that totally fucked up your garden and, come to think of it, caused some serious flooding out in the Midwest. They said prices would skyrocket because of the awful harvest, but you didn't seem to notice. Prices continued to climb, no matter what was going on. Maybe this climate change stuff is blown out of control. How the fuck can you know? You're not a goddamn scientist. There was that UN IPCC report seven years ago saying that the point of no return would be in 2030, and nothing seems to have changed even though that's now only five years away. This is a weird time, you think to yourself, where supposedly the planet is dying, and based on the wildfires in Australia, and the fact that it was 40 degrees above average last week, it seems like a pretty fair assessment. Yet, we all still have to go to work every day and listen to some dickhead tell us what we're doing wrong on some report that doesn't matter. Bifurcation. That's the term you're looking for. A word you hadn't heard since grad school. The term meant for when you experience two seemingly opposite things going on at the same time. Should you save for retirement? Will retirement exist? Not that you have the money. Maybe you should invest in those buckets of MREs that supposedly last for 30 years. Is there a future for your kids? Your nieces? Your nephews? Speaking of which, you forgot to get one of them a birthday present, and it's coming up next week. You know they probably won't really play with it, not for long anyway, but you're obligated to do so, and in doing so will buy more plastic to shortly fill those overflowing landfills. It feels weird. It's like you've got this sinking feeling following you around, like we're all acting like everything's normal, but deep down we know it's not. But then again, Maybe it's just you. Then again, thinking back to that landfill, you know that every diaper you ever shit in when you were your nephew's age is still sitting there, not even beginning to degrade. There's some kind of poetic justice in there somewhere. You take another sip and check your phone. Work emails, ads, God damn it! somehow those fucking MRE buckets popped up on Facebook as an advertisement. How the fuck do they do that? Speaking of which, you figure if we really were fucked, all those super rich people would want to keep the planet alive, at least for their own kids. Although those same assholes have bunkers scattered across the globe and are trying to get to Mars. Somehow, Space travel to Mars seems more feasible than global catastrophe that we have ample evidence for. You start recalling some dates. In 2030, the point of no return from that report, you'll be 43. And as early as 2040, we may begin to run out of fertilizer, decimating the ability of the destroyed soils across the planet's ability to produce food. Eight years later, the oceans will have acidified so much they will be left without fish, at which point you'll be 61. And two years later, in 2050, 
80% of the world's underground freshwater reserves will be tapped out. So, chances are, by 63, you'll be dead or living in dire straits. Historically speaking, that's still better than most of human history. And, in 2074, if you make it to 87, there might not be any farmable land left. It sounds pretty hopeless. So, instead of thinking about it, you light up a cigarette. You had quit a few years back, but the urge started coming back. Maybe some of it is that old mentality, smoke them if you got them, and maybe some of it is that you'd rather give yourself a meaningful outlet to focus on, trying to quit instead of the alternative, waiting. So what can you do? We aren't recycling our way out of it, nor is driving an electric car, even if you could afford it, going to make any meaningful change. My name is Andy, and together with Elliot, we are the Poor Proles Almanac. We are Poor Proles, and we've got some shit to talk about. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you listen to podcasts. In this podcast, we're going to be tackling the issues surrounding global warming and the impending economic catastrophe of global capitalism, and how that will impact community building and self-sufficiency. Our hope is you listen learn some things, and apply some things. And call us out on some shit if we're wrong. It doesn't do anyone any good if we fuck up. By no means are we experts in any of these areas, and that's kind of the point. There will come a day when you need to do things that you're not an expert in, and it requires a foundational knowledge in a significant amount of these areas. Areas such as gardening, forest management, technology, chemistry, self-defense, engineering, community building, the fucked up history that led us to where we are today, as well as plenty of other subject areas. No one can know everything and that's part of why community is so important, as we start to consider the world that will have to be rebuilt as this one crumbles. If you enjoy what you hear, you can help fund our work on Patreon, and join us on Discord. With that, we look forward to this conversation, and instead of focusing on the collapse, we're thinking about what we can build instead. Together, we can make a better world. Hey folks, welcome to the Poor Proles Almanac. And this, this is our first episode. My name is Andy, and I'll be your guide. And today we're talking about climate change. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, I got it. I believe it. What more is there really to understand? Well, before we dive in, I want to give a big thank you to Tom Wessels, who gave an incredible lecture on this subject a few years ago back in Brattleboro. And it's one that we're borrowing from extensively. The reasoning is simple. The data he brings to the table regarding global warming gives us a new lens to view the challenges we face, and he asks us to look back to nature to find out how we can survive and even thrive following the inevitable impacts of our destruction of the planet. It is in this vein that we are able to see that we can mimic nature through a left-leaning 
communalist idea of self-sustaining communities that identifies with self-organization and complex systems as necessary tools for successful, resilient, stable communities. First, we need to look at complex system science, specifically the second law of thermodynamics and self-organization and using that to create a framework to discuss how we can apply it to human systems, specifically in relation to the economy and our relationship with the ecology. And if that didn't scare you off, awesome. Let's talk science history. And we're going to start with those crazy Greeks and their enlightenment. Reductionist theory has a background in Greek philosophy, particularly Descartes and Kant, with the general idea that everything is the sum of its parts. Sometimes, things are more than the sum of their parts. Now, some folks in the early 20th century started to realize this, and what they realized was that not only did we need to move away from this reductionist thinking, this idea of breaking everything down into the sum of its parts, and what came forward was the Macy Conference in 1941, where specialists in a spectrum of scientific fields came together to talk science. And it was awkward, like really awkward. It became super apparent early on that they didn't have the language to communicate across disciplines. And we're talking like science people to science people. So it was kind of a disaster. But that's part of what made it so important. And despite the general mess the first conference was, some things did manage to get made clear. Similar patterns had emerged across disciplines, from ecologists to sociology, and it was there that the same patterns and processes were seen across the spectrum, and a new paradigmatic approach came out of it called chaos theory, a direct challenge to linear systems. Later, the name was changed to complex system science once they realized what they were witnessing wasn't chaos, but rather larger models of something of a linear system in that what was happening could be measured and predicted on larger scales, but on the smaller scales, the amount of activity was overwhelming and immeasurable. The great thing about complex system science is that the same principles apply to any system. It's easy to move from one system to another and even across disciplines and be able to predict results. Linear systems, just like their name suggests, act as a domino effect. Complex systems are the opposite. Parts don't interact in any linear or consistent way, meaning that as these different parts act in different ways, they can change the system as a whole. The system is dynamic. It cannot be static. Think of a forest. Depending on the weather will impact the amount of acorns a tree produces, which impacts how many squirrels live there, which impacts other animals that rely on both squirrels and acorn drop, and so on and so on. Everything impacts other things and doesn't have a linear change impact. So that was a big shift in how research was done. Now we see these systems nested within larger systems, all with the same general rules. The same way we can say a family has the same dynamics of a small town, which has the same dynamics of a metropolitan, and so on and so on. So let's bring this all back to climate change. 
and let's scale it up to the 10,000 foot view. We are today in an ice age. We have been for about 10 to 15 million years. An ice age is defined when there is ice on one or both poles of the planet, which we technically have for now. During the last million years of this ice age, a pattern has emerged every 100,000 to 120,000 years when we have had periods of vast glaciation, followed by quick periods of warming up, melting that ice away, and this pattern seems to be getting stronger and stronger, and science isn't really sure why at this point. 18,000 years ago, we were at the last glacial maximum, called the Younger Dryas, which we are now receding from, a period which is called an interglacial period, and we should be going back into another glacial period in the next between 10 and 80,000 years. The science is still kind of out on that. But back to that glacial maximum 18,000 years ago, the Younger Dryas, a period during which the Arctic cap had reached down all the way to Long Island and Cape Cod, the period we generally think of when we speak about ice ages. The average temperature of the planet was 51 degrees Fahrenheit. This is an important number to think of because the temperatures we have experienced during modern human history, that is, the last two to 5,000 years ago, is not the typical temperature of the planet. To put this in context, over the last 2 million years, only 4% of the time has temperatures been warm enough, for example, the New England states, to be able to have trees on them. So, why does this happen? Why would the planet randomly warm up shortly and then cool back down? It all has to do with our relationship to the sun. There are three pieces to this. One is a 100,000 year cycle where the orbit of the Earth going around the sun changes from circular to elliptical. 100,000 years is about the time it takes to go from circular to elliptical back to circular. The closer we are to the sun, obviously, the warmer we are. The second is regarding the axis tilt of the planet. It adjusts from about 24.5 degrees to 22.5 degrees and back to 24.5 degrees every 40,000 years or so. The stronger the tilt, the more extreme the weather will be. The last piece is a 20,000 year cycle where due to the gravitational pressure of the planets in the solar system, the planet turns on a wobble, which impacts when the northern hemisphere is facing the sun, whether it's during the summer or the winter. The obvious impact of that is either warmer winters and cooler summers or more extreme seasons. In 9,000 years, we will be closest to the sun during summertime, meaning right now we are experiencing more mild seasons, being at the middle of that cycle. Now, when we are in an elliptical pattern, meaning warm weather from the orbit, as well as that 24.5 degree axis tilt, which means more extreme heat, and the wobble cycle is positively impacting the northern hemisphere, meaning, again, more heat, we get these interglacial periods. There are three things that need to align to get enough sun to warm the planet that much. All this stuff has to align. We had all this stuff align about 6,000 years ago, and we reached the warmest temperature as a mean global temp of around 60 degrees. 
That's a whopping 9 degrees warmer than the average temperature of the last ice age. Let's remember that. It took 12,000 years with the perfect alignment of resources to increase 9 degrees, and that was the most rapid climate change experienced on the planet in probably 65 million years. We've gone up a degree within 100 years, and we're on track to break that in the next 20 or 50 years. By stepping back and looking at the big picture, it's quite easy to see the rate of effect we are having on the planet. We are warming the planet 100 times faster than at any time in history, and that's a big fucking problem. We don't need to argue about carbon emissions and whether or not we can impact the environment, because when we step back and view from that 10,000-foot perch, We don't need to know anything about carbon footprint to see the massive impact we're having globally. So now let's talk about feedback loops and how they play with the changes like this. There are two types of feedback loops, negative feedback and positive feedback loops. In negative feedback loops, you see a reverse in the loop elements. For example, your room gets hot, your thermostat clicks on, the AC turns on, the room gets cold, And once it comes to that temperature that you are looking for, the thermostat turns off, the AC turns off, and so on. Negative feedback is good for stasis. Our bodies run on negative feedback. Things that need to stay in a band of temperatures or whatever it might be do well with negative feedbacks. It's self-regulating. Negative feedback, however, is not great for things that are trying to grow. Positive feedback does the opposite. Positive feedback is when you're continuing to amplify the original action. Think about a microphone loop at a concert. No one likes that. Positive feedback loops aren't always obvious, however, because oftentimes they're growing and growing and growing, and they finally overcome another negative feedback loop. Donald Trump's election is a perfect example of a positive feedback loop. As middle-class America was slowly hollowed out through a positive feedback loop of tax restructuring, free trade agreements, and union dissolutions, and pay flatlined, the purchasing power of the middle class slowly eroded to the point that the marginal cost of inflation of things like healthcare are now 10% increases on salaries because those salaries didn't keep up. Positive feedback loops are exponential. Now, there's a moment sometimes where that system flips from a positive feedback loop to a negative feedback loop, and that's called bifurcation. Sometimes bifurcation is good. Sometimes it's not great. Which brings me back to the global climate. Right now, the Arctic temperature is warming, which means the ice is melting, and less ice means less reflection of sunlight, which is called the albedo effect. Now, your water temperature is going up since there's less ice, helping melt more ice, reinforcing the Arctic temperature increases. Additionally, as Arctic temperature increases, permafrost melts. Methane release increases, which means heat trapping increases, also further increasing Arctic temperatures. That sounds a lot like a positive feedback loop to me. The question is, when will we hit bifurcation? And what will happen from there? We may enter a new positive feedback loop, or we may have stasis. So hopefully that makes sense, right? Let's flip to the second law of thermodynamics 
and our Climate Apocalypse Disaster Tour 2020. You might remember this from high school science. No energy can be created or destroyed. All of the energy of the universe today is the same exact amount as there was 100,000 years ago, before we could even think about fucking anything up. That said, we can still transform it, whether it's gas being converted into heat or water running downstream. Now, part of this is that none of the energy converts 100% from one type to another. There are usually inefficiencies. This is often seen through loss of heat or light. And it might not seem like a big deal because it's so common, but it is. There are three forms of this, and the first one is called anti-entropic, which is when something takes in more energy than it puts out. Anything growing, a baby, a tree, a piece of grass, is considered anti-entropic. It is storing energy and is usually tied to positive feedback loops. As things reach maturity and take in equal to what they take out, they're considered to be in dynamic equilibrium. Like most adults, we aren't getting bigger, at least not on purpose, and we are in a stasis. The last is an entropic system when systems lose more energy than they take in. Usually, this is the beginning stages of decay and collapse. Entropic systems go from complexity to simplicity and become diffusive. Kind of like Donald Trump. But um, So let's talk about entropy in particular. Decay and collapse is interesting because this is where we see energy transformed. For example, in the breakdown and degradation of the complex systems, like the nutrient cycles in the soil. When the rainforest is cleared for soy crops, these systems are destroyed. Or in burning concentrated forms of energy like oil into heat, in both of these very simple examples, we see entropy play out as complex resources are divided into the sum of their parts, which, if we recall from complex systems, are often less than what they are as a whole. Now, all of this, this is why our current system is not sustainable. All environmental problems are forms of entropy, and when you start to think about it, it's totally obvious. Whether it's your monoculture grass, which needs intense amounts of fertilizer and weed killer to be aesthetically pleasing, or the intensive need for potash, for fertilizers, for our food supply, or the dwindling availability of fish within the ocean. All of these are entropic processes, and removing diversity and energy from these systems causes more damage than just the individual piece that is removed because, again, the value of the complex system is more than the sum of its parts. So let's go back to that 10,000 foot view again. Life has existed on the planet for about 3.8 billion years. For the first 3.5 billion years, the Earth was an anti-entropic system. The planet was taking in more resources from the sun than it was releasing. This is what our soil is built from. Our fossil fuel reserves stem from the buildup of molecules in our air like oxygen and so on. Then, about 300 million years ago, we bifurcated and entered a dynamic equilibrium. But for the first time in the last 3.8 billion years, we are entering into an entropic system. We are actually losing roughly 10% of the energy coming in from the sun and sending it back into outer space, which 
at first glance might seem like a good thing. Isn't getting rid of the sun's heat good for global warming? Well, the thing is, we are becoming more and more entropic as we continue degrading the complex systems further and further as our energy use continues to rise. Now, let's circle back to some of my earlier thoughts. What about those rich guys focused on doing things like developing electric cars? Won't those help? Well, not really. What these technologies do, effectively, is find ways to take energy from new sources and doesn't change the amount of energy being used. We may be increasing efficiency, but that's not really the problem. Again, no energy can be made or lost, just transformed. That's not to say that it's not good to have more of these clean energies in terms of, say, breathable air, but energy transfer itself is the problem. But what about things like energy efficiency? Isn't that important as well? Yes, it is, and it can be hugely invaluable. But the problem is our capitalist society has taken our energy efficiency improvements and, for example, with housing, used it to justify building houses that are 30% bigger than homes 50 years ago. Despite energy efficiency increases, our per capita consumption continues to grow and grow, reinforcing that entropic system and, yeah, you see how this goes. A significant piece of why our consumption grows is EROEI, or Energy Return on Energy Invested. For example, you build a solar panel. How much of the energy the solar panel creates needs to meet the costs to build the solar panel? Right now, a modern solar panel in 2020 has a return of about 15 to 1 ratio of energy. So that could sound good or bad. What context do we have for that? Well, let's look at oil. Back in the early 1900s, the return on energy invested for oil was around 125 to 1. For every gallon of oil used to pump oil and refine it, we got 125 gallons of usable energy. As we have already harvested the low-hanging fruit, that number has dropped dramatically and currently sits closer to 12 to 1, which is not much different than solar. For context, we currently have technologies such as micro-hydro systems with energy returns closer to 200 to 1. And that's probably where we should be focusing our energies on if we want to create sustainable energy systems. The fact that they are also smaller systems is significant in terms of how I envision what our future looks like, and we'll talk a bit about that later. Now, we have something of a framework to understand the ecology of the planet, and we have evidence of what sustainable systems look like, what exists out in nature, what existed before our species created vast networks of mercantilism and ultimately capitalism. Now there's two features of complex systems that are significant in identifying the long-term successes or failures of complex systems. And those two areas are cascading failures or dynamic networks of multiplicity. Cascading failures is a pretty simple concept. Due to various coupling between components, which we'll touch on when we start talking about coevolution, emergent development, and symbiotic relationships, 
what can happen is localized failures can lead to large-scale collapses of entire networks. Think about, say, when a lion is poached, and it is the only lion for hundreds of miles. Without the predator, antelope and other species will grow in population, decimating the grazing fields which can only support a certain amount of antelope. This will destroy the soil, causing massive nutrient loss, and you can see where this is going. Not great. So, this is a challenge in complex systems. They can become entropic. The flip to this is having dynamic networks of multiplicity, in which local interactions between species and inter-area connections exist. In nature, this is usually the case. So, for the example above, while the loss of a lion would be significant, in a truly dynamic system with networks of multiplicity, another carnivore would take its place, whether it be an increased hyena population or some other species. These species are generally considered generalists and fill in as populations ebb and flow of those species that do specialization. This idea of dynamic networks of multiplicity when those systems are complex systems, makes a lot of sense, right? It's also nature's modeling of Bookchin's concept of municipal confederalism, which, if you're not familiar with, is an anarchist theory that has been recently playing out in some context in Rojava, a region in northeast Syria. Now, there are a few branches of ecology, and I want to bring them up and circle back to this conversation about climate catastrophe. The first is physiological ecology, which is the relationship and interaction between an animal and its environment. More specifically, how organisms are adapted to their climate. The second I'd like to bring up is population ecology, which is the study of the relationship and interactions of animals within a specific population. Thirdly, there's community ecology, which is focused on the relationships between different species, whether they're cooperative, competitive, and so on. So we've got three different relationships happening here. Animal and nature, animal and same animal, and animal and other animal. With that framed up, let's take a look at the symbiosis of these relationships, specifically called ecological symbiosis. When two animals interact, those relationships are either positive, negative, or neutral for each of those animals. Say a lion eats a zebra. That's a plus for the lion, but a negative for the zebra. Duh. That's called predation. The other positive and negative interaction is called parasitism. The difference between predation and parasitism is a parasite doesn't kill whereas a core function of a predator is killing another animal. The second a parasite kills its host, it is turned into a predator. Ticks are parasites, goats are parasites on weeds and other plant species because it damages them but doesn't kill them, but the second a herd of goats destroys a field, that herd is now a grass predator. And that's not even truly accurate, and we'll talk about the relationship of animals with grasslands in another episode, but I just wanted to kind of frame that up. Now, if the goat kills the grass just by walking over it and gains nothing from killing it, then the relationship is no longer that of predation, but immensalism. 
And if we know our Latin, and we do, because we're a bunch of heathens, immensalism is when one living thing kills another living thing with no measurable gain. Humans are pretty good at this category. We kill shit all around us, with no discernible difference in the quality of our lives. Usually, immensalism is an accidental relationship. Now, let's look at the negative-negative relationship, also known as competition. Competition is a negative-negative relationship. Both parties have losses and no gains are created. If you think about, say, a coyote and a fox fighting over a rabbit, which probably isn't something that happens very often, but in this scenario, they're fighting, burning energy, which they may be running out of, and is always in short supply, and one wins. Are either better off for that fight? No, probably not. One might be slightly better off, but not better off than when the fight started. When these two animals learn to coexist by specializing in what they eat, instead of directly competing over general resources, they are able to more efficiently use their energy, and that's something we see a lot in nature. And I think you're starting to see where this is going. Another relationship that we see is positive and neutral, which is called commensalism. Think like tapping sugar maple trees. The trees aren't materially impacted, while us, the user of the sugar water, are positively impacted. The last two that are worth talking about are both double positives, in which both animals or creatures benefit from the relationship. We'll start with mutualism, which is when animals or plants rely on each other to survive. When you're watching a nature documentary and they show that ants that are milking aphids, both species require the others to survive, and that's mutualism. The other double positive is proto-cooperation, which is when species help each other, but they're not reliant specifically on one another to survive. For example, pollination. Most plants aren't reliant on one specific bug to be pollinated by, and most bugs aren't reliant on one specific plant to survive. There are some, like butterflies and milkweed, but those relationships are mutualist, not cooperative. While recognizing these relationships is important, what's more important is knowing that these relationships aren't static. As they become more efficient and co-evolve, their relationships change. So let's step back and reintroduce the idea of linear versus complex systems and put those relationships that we just talked about in context. In a linear relationship, in which one thing happens, then another thing happens, and so on and so on, there isn't much opportunity for change to those relationships. In the complex systems, the different species, which are constantly relating to each other in different ways and at different times, creating new feedback systems, many of which are positive feedback loops, which ultimately bifurcate, and is this growth that is part of the development of complex systems as they become more and more complex. When that bifurcation happens, large-scale changes happen very quickly and many times seemingly come from nowhere. So now we've got all this really great context on how nature, ecology, and physics plays out on a big-picture scale, right? We've got all this information on how things interact and how small interactions can have massive repercussions. 
and all of that good stuff. Let's dig into the stuff you really care about, self-organization. Let's frame up exactly what self-organization is and how it relates to things like complex systems. During the entropic phase, as systems grow, not only are they taking in more energy than they are releasing, they are becoming more complex. And in becoming more complex, the pieces are becoming more specialized, which further benefits the whole. Think of, for example, the cells in your body. Humans have many more types of cells than, say, moss. We are a more complex species and require cells to be more specialized to meet all the demands we have in order to survive. Part of this specialization is that these systems become more efficient and more tightly related to one another, much like having a licensed, seasoned plumber can probably replumb your house faster than your uncle that can do a little bit of everything. These specialists become very good at one thing, instead of all right at many things. Having a collection of specialists is far more valuable than a collection of folks that can do everything all right in that the things are done better, more efficiently, and keep the system as a whole more resilient to unexpected changes. By having these highly specialized parts tightly integrated, that by having each part focused on doing what it is best at and for its own purposes, creates conditions that benefit the system as a whole. Self-organization happens collectively and without any clear given direction. The same way we don't tell our body which parts need to do what when we have, say, a bacterial infection, or a sprained ankle. With this in mind, the foundation of all communities and life is energy. Like we said, energy can't be created. It's limited. Natural selection is focused on becoming more efficient, not direct competition. We tend to use this idea of natural selection being about which species can out-survive another, but that's really not the case. The species aren't competing with each other. Usually, they're competing with the limited resources available and their ability to efficiently use them. I know, you're shocked that something that reinforces our natural collectivism has been transmogrified into something that is pro-capitalist. Me too. Speaking of transmogrification, something you probably don't hear very often, let's talk about invasive species introduction. If you're not familiar with invasive species, it's when a species goes into a new environment and has no known predator or self-controlling mechanism. The popular example is the American chestnut, which was nearly wiped out by a fungus brought over on a Chinese chestnut tree to New York 100 years ago. Most folks are probably used to seeing oak trees everywhere, and it's pretty common here in New England. American chestnuts were the most common tree across North America, and over a span of something like 20 years, 99.9% .9 were wiped out. But not all of them. And these few American chestnuts, that despite not co-evolving with this fungus for millions of years, managed to survive. The first stands that survived only lasted for a few years and died back down to the roots. The following stands are surviving longer and longer, 
and likely will eventually grow to full maturity and begin to repopulate the continent. What has happened is the symbiotic relationship has changed from predator to parasite. From a co-evolution standpoint and an evolutionary standpoint, this makes sense. It is much more efficient for the fungus to not kill off the species it needs to survive, right? This process is called selection pressure. When a sizable portion of a species is killed off, and the greater the proportion of that species is killed off, the faster the species needs to evolve in order to survive. A side note here, when we try to wipe out something like a virus, make sure you get 100% of it because this is what happens. Like, fucking kill it. Go total Rambo, annihilate it. This predatory relationship has evolved into a parasitic relationship, which, for the prey, seems like a better deal. In fact, for both. Eventually, the prey in the relationship, as the systems become more efficient, will enter into a commensalist relationship, where the trees are no longer negatively impacted at all by the fungus, and, in theory, eventually, may enter into a mutualist or proto-cooperative relationship where the tree actually benefits from the relationship as well as the fungus, which would be the most efficient relationship possible. And the thing is, we know this has happened. We have evidence of species today that are mutualist that previously had not been, and most of them are ants for some reason. The value of coevolution cannot be understated. We have had five major extinctions on this planet where we lost over 90% of species. And we actually have more species today than ever before. As species become more and more specialized and tightly related, like these co-evolved mutualist and cooperative relationships, complex systems become extremely highly efficient. Species discovered that they were able to become more efficient and have more energy if instead of competing, they specialized. This process is called niche separation. When we speak about niche, we generally are speaking about how species find and extract their food. Let's consider two species going after the same food in the same ecosystem. There are a few ways they can segregate their food source. The first is with microhabitat separation. For example, chickadees and nuthatches. They eat the same exact foods in the same areas, but chickadees eat those same foods on branches and nuthatches focus on the trunk of the tree. The second is temporal separation, which is when two species eat the same foods but during different times. A really simple example is watching the growing cycle of ground plants in the forest. In the spring, Various weeds and wildflowers sprout and soak up the spring sun, and as the leaves fill in, they die back for the season, and a whole new crop of shade-loving plants take their place. Another example of this segregation is called resource partitioning, which is when, say, two species of different sizes eat the same foods, but the larger, say, birds, eat the larger version of the foods, and the smaller birds eat eat the smaller version of the same exact food. 
Crazy, right? At the end of the day, what we're seeing is more extensive specialization. And that means their niche in the complex system is smaller and smaller, which means that not only can the ecosystem support more and more species, but the loss of a species is less and less significant. Now, coevolution isn't simply in regards to mutualism, cooperation, or through niche separation. We also have use of color schemes. The first example is Batesian mimicry. The most obvious one is when we see flies that look like bees so that animals don't try to eat them. The idea is that it relies on fears of the other species to be successful, which means that the mimic cannot be a large population. Another version of mimicry is called malarian mimicry, which is pretty similar to Batesian, but both species carry similar negative traits, usually something like a bad taste. A third is structural mimicry, when we see animals take on the shape of sticks, leaves, and other objects in the ground, and other objects in their background, which is slightly different than camouflaging into your background through color, which is called cryptic coloration. Now, I could go on and on, but my point is that there are a lot of color schemes that are co-evolved interactions, which creates these cooperative and mutualist symbiotic relationships in our reflective of more dynamic, complex systems. Energy efficiency is pushing coevolution to help make species more specialized, which makes niches shrink. Species diversity increases, which means repetition of function goes up, which means risk of loss from species loss is cut significantly, and more systems are more resilient and stable. Hopefully, by now, you're seeing how all of this is playing together, and the interconnectedness of successful complex systems and how these promote energy efficiency to the benefit of all species. I'm going to cut it here on the deep dive stuff. One of the things you might have started thinking as you listened to this foundation to the theory of complex systems is that, while there seem to be linear systems, and there are obviously examples of simple systems where if you take one species out of the environment, the entire environment will struggle. And things like predatory relationships exist. Why? So let's talk about what factors impact self-organization in complex systems. And then we are going to finally bring it all home to the realm of humanity. So there are a few things that can help bolster species diversity and can foster that self-organization, starting with the most obvious, variation on environment. Environments that are physically stable are able to sustain more species diversity. That's why the rainforest is super complex and the Arctic can change drastically by the loss of a couple polar bears. Less stress from extreme environmental conditions allows animals to focus on specialization and efficiency and less on survival across multiple spectrums of conditions. A species simply doesn't need significant adaptations and risks of extinction are significantly reduced when they don't have to worry about environmental change. In relation to this environmental variation, the physical structure is also a significant component of fostering self-organization. 
certain physical spaces limit species diversity by not providing a large enough variation to allow those complex systems to create and share a similar ecosystem. We see this with things like coral reefs, where the ecosystem for complex systems are able to thrive because of the diversity of the space. Another challenge we see that supports self-organization is low levels of competitive exclusion. What this means is that when a species moves in, it is incredibly adept at keeping other species out of its environment. One way to break competitive exclusion is with keystone predators, that is, a predator that preys on specific animals extremely well. Another way to break that competitive edge is disturbance, preferably intermediate disturbance, enough to create space for other species, but not enough to totally decimate the environment and restrict self-organization. While there are others, these three in particular are useful in how this self-organization can be reflected in developing human systems. When we look at the best, most dynamic complex systems, those anti-entropic systems that store energy, they typically succeed in these three areas. Again, think about the rainforest. The reason it's often referred to as the planet's lungs is because it succeeds in these three categories. The climate is temperate with dynamic varieties of plant and has massive physical structure. Additionally, one of the other categories I did not bring up is that ecological self-organization requires evolutionary time to develop those positive synergies, which the rainforest also has because it has stayed constantly warm enough for life to exist despite the ice age. We can start to see these factors in our communities. Let's think about suburbia. Why does everyone hate suburbia? Is it because it's wasteful and inconvenient for folks that work in the city? Why then do teenagers hate their suburban home? Well, it's not those things, as I'm sure you know. It's probably the quasi-racist dad on his riding lawnmower crushing Bud Heavy and cranking ACDC, because, you know, that was real rock and roll. Well, no. I mean, maybe. It's probably a part of it, not gonna lie. But the real reason is the monotonous nature of suburban development. If we were to look at an 1,100-acre subdivision, let's say 100 acres is road and the remaining 1,000 acres, there are 1,000 houses, each with a one-acre lot. It sounds like a little slice of hell, right? Not really enough to feel connected with nature or the ability to create your own ecosystem because, you know, it's just grass but enough to be a massive pain in the ass. Now imagine that same community, but those 1,000 houses are densely placed together and now you've got 800 acres of park space. Enough space for walking paths, a small food forest, even a small pond. How much of a difference is that in terms of community? It's healthier for human communities and the environment. It's proto-cooperation. We benefit and nature is benefiting by our conscious decision to develop our communities differently. We can play this game out with each of these factors of self-organization. Let's talk about competitive exclusion. In capitalism, 
low levels of competitive exclusion would be a monopoly. Even those assholes figured out how fucked competitive exclusion is, even if they don't take their own advice anymore. In smaller communities, creating spaces for folks from different skills and challenges allows those same folks to develop into their full capacity and become a part of a community where they're able to contribute instead of being drowned out by those with the loudest voices and the most purchasing power. Providing physical stability in places like schools and within the context of having safe homes and guaranteed food and employment provides the framework for success. This is nothing new, but we are putting it into a new context that reinvigorates community development and specifically how collective good is good for all of us. Okay, that's all good and stuff, but that's nothing crazy, right? Let's talk about the father of modern economics. Not your boy Karl Marx, but that other guy, the one who is misquoted possibly even more than Mad Marx, Adam Smith. Smith, in his book Wealth of Nations, written in 1776, nearly 200 years before the Macy Conference in New York, that conference where all the scientists got together and were like, hey, do you see this pattern that we're seeing everywhere? Yeah, before that event, he was writing about complex systems. Which, if anyone has taken basic economics and is listening, the whole concept of building value and wealth sounds pretty fucking similar to what these complex systems do, right? But keep in mind, this was pre-industrial society, and he was focused on merchant economies. When he spoke of the invisible hand, he was talking about self-organization structured around specialized, skilled individuals creating sufficient markets that benefited the whole community better than the individual. By each person creating unique crafts, individuals were able to stay away from direct competition and specialize in one part of the market, which reduces energy losses. No one was, for example, a carpenter. You were a chairmaker, and there was one, maybe two chairmakers in town. And if there was more than one, they likely carved out different parts of the market. Then the Industrial Revolution came and fucked everything up. Not that we're amprims or anything, but simply put, individuals were no longer craftsmen who contributed to a greater good with a hand in the decision process in the community development through self-organization. Now, we focus on competition and cost-cutting, which hurts the worker and the purchaser. Further, the bulk of capital for nearly all these different sectors runs through maybe a couple dozen multinational companies, and none of those companies specializes in any meaningful way. Unilever, for example, makes your soap, toothpaste, food products, house cleaning products, and plenty more. You could almost live entirely off of the products of Unilever, for example. Instead of integrating with other corporations through specialized niches, they instead compete, which, if you recall, is a negative-negative relationship. Both parties lose. And, in fact, companies have figured this out. When you hear about things like price-fixing, that's them recognizing the lose-lose nature of business in a competitive setting. Now it's win-lose, and they win and we lose. What this all means is that we're moving away 
from that decentralization and even further, we're becoming less resilient. The benefits of complex systems, which add value to the benefit of the community, is being replaced by conglomerates, which are not only siphoning out value through its linear structure from communities, but making communities more vulnerable by destroying the interconnected web of specialists that had once existed. Further, these companies do not respond directly with the complex systems they are integrated within because the decision-making powers of these conglomerates is often held outside of these nested systems. Why is insulin so expensive that people are dying? Wouldn't the bad press be a negative for the company? Without going too deep into the economic theory around market elasticity, the basic reason is companies found it was more profitable to jack up prices so high it would price out some users, but the return from the remaining users would be so high they would make up more money selling to fewer customers. And we could go on and on about capitalism, specifically this version that is focused on infusing capital through massive corporations and barring entry to the market for small businesses is uniquely capable of fucking over not only our species, but the entire fucking planet. But all that's going to do is give me an ulcer, and you don't want to hear about that. I can promise you. Besides, chances are, nothing here is particularly new to you, but framing the conversation within a natural context, I believe, adds new implication to what is happening, and helps us frame a new direction forward. What we need to do is re-regionalize our markets and integrate these regional market systems in a way that is mutually supportive. Speaking of regional markets, let's talk about fast food. Fast food restaurants source their meat from across the globe, where it is sent to meat processing plants, where it's measured, cooked, and frozen, only to move to distributors, then to the actual fast food restaurant. Now, Joe's Diner that supports local food gets their meat from a cow 10 miles down the road. So, if local makes more sense, why is fast food so cheap? Well, they can bring down labor costs by creating marginal value through assembly lines and relying on cheap forms of energy, which won't exist indefinitely. The problem is that this is all based on huge amounts of energy. And remember, Energy cannot be created, it is finite. And we have talked about the fact that we need to bring energy use down, and while a fast food restaurant may be financially prudent and efficient with capital, capital is infinite and energy is not. This isn't to say that capitalism is sustainable outside of the idea of finite energy, because it is probably one of the worst things to happen to the planet ever, but what this conversation does is provide a cohesive narrative framed with evidence-based resources that provide proof that what exists now simply cannot exist much longer. It's not a theoretical conversation, but one based on basic facts that we can prove time and time again. What we have lived under is the idea that time is money, and since time is energy, money is a reflection of an investment of energy. And that's not the case. So what do we do? Can we save our society? Well, this podcast isn't here to talk about saving our current state from capitalism, 
nor are we here to preach Richard Wolff-style development of cooperatives. Like, that stuff is interesting, and I'm an accountant with a background in economics, so that shit is totally up my alley. But, simply put, that's not what we're here for. We're here to talk about what happens next. What happens when shit hits the fan, and we're building a new society out of the ashes of the old. And all that really depends on what we're left with. Daddy Marx would call that material conditions. And I agree that the material condition of the space where we have to create community and reinvent economy in a sustainable, prospering manner while living within the confines of the hellscape that we will inherit creates some unique fucking challenges. But let's create a framework, right? It's this framework that reinforces the fact we cannot fucking do this on our own as individuals. And it's not just because we'll get lonely or because of the amount of knowledge in such a wide variety of subjects is insanely extensive, but because we have to model nature and our role in nature if we want to not just survive, but be prosperous. We know what we have to do to make sustainable, successful communities. Communities where individuals can value their contribution to society and we can work to collectively create a better society within the context of the world that is left. It's up to us to develop the tools now while we have easy access to resources so that when the time comes, we are as ready as we can be. And that's what we're doing. We're preparing ourselves for what comes next and how we can be better neighbors, friends, and comrades. And with that, we've covered global warming in a way you've probably never heard before. Hopefully you enjoyed it, and hopefully it wasn't depressing but inspiring, and that we have this unique opportunity to learn from the mistakes of the planet, and we can use the resources we have available to make a better world in the future. Until next time, this is Andy. And this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. Yeah.